0: Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and Founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer.
1: Welcome back to the Genuine Humans podcast. Wendy, how are you doing? How's your week been going? Uh, Yeah, it's been great
0: so far. It's it's been a funny sort of few days because it suddenly feels like it's a big milestone moment. This time of year, it always feels like start of term. But this year, me and my friends are all prepping for our kids to go off to university and it just feels ridiculous. They were nine five minutes ago. I'm not sure what's happened. (laughs)
1: Well I, I always see it as uh, it's that social media moment where everyone's kids are in front of the door right So it's it's that yeah. that's the <laughs> defining moment it's that time of year but no all, all all well with me and I'm so happy today as we are joined by Gemma Greaves who's one of those super connectors and a real personal inspiration to me. Uh, Gemma was the, CEO of the Marketing Society and she's also the founder of Cabal which I'm proud to be a member of and she's the co-founder of Nurture.
2: So welcome Gemma. Hello lovely to be here and I relate to the school thing except or the uni thing it's my my son's five so he's mm-hmm. going into year one but it's all about back to school right now. And, yeah um, yeah <laughs> new shoes. New shoes, having trousers <laughs> ironed, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And I don't really like ironing, so, um, yeah, uh, they've just been hanging up in the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gemma, I
1: would love you to just explain your your vision for both Nurture and Cabal. Can you just give a little bit more information about the two of them?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I guess it's probably better to start with Cabal, which is um, my club that I founded back in 2013. Um, and I did that when I was still at the Marketing Society because I loved my job. And obviously I know we'll, we'll probably delve into to what I did there and, um, you know, love, love what we did there, but always had this inclination, always had this thing where I felt like I needed to have something of my own. I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to, I suppose, you know, start the entrepreneurial journey as it were. So I started that in, uh, in 2013, because I genuinely believe when you bring good people together, that's where good things happen. That's where ideas come from. That's where big relationships are formed. That's where you might end up doing some business together, which is really lovely. And so it was just this idea in my head. And I just, you know, when I get an idea in my head, I've just got to kind of go for it. That's, that's, that's what I'm like. And just being surrounded by good people and saying, what do you think of this? And they were like, actually, I really like it. And there was, there was one guy in particular, Dom Groundsall, who's a founding member um, of Cabal. And he was just like well you know we get so much benefit from hanging out together and we were at that sort of early stage in our well, not early stage but we were earlier stage than now showing my age a wee bit um, but i think he was at capital one i was maybe head of marketing at the marketing society and we just found that we were really benefiting each other from our um, friendship that started from work and we thought if you extend that to a wider group that could be really interesting. Spoke to a few other people and they kind of went, yep, I'm in, let's do it. And Cabal was formed. So it's a hand-picked club of extraordinary people, Tamara being one of them. And I just think that when you bring people together um, and you create that space where people can truly be themselves, that's where the magic happens. And I'm just delighted that Cabal still is very much part of all of our lives, uh, Cabalians, that's what we're called, Cabalians, and and we have genuinely helped each other along the way, I think it's fair to say.
1: Absolutely, I think it was one of the groups of people that I couldn't wait to meet once we were allowed to sort of meet in person again, and we were meeting each other virtually, which of course so many people have done, but I, I just could not wait to actually see everybody in person.
2: Yeah, and just hug. A COVID-related safe hug, but (laughs) a hug all the same. Absolutely. And I guess through that um, and through that belief and bringing people together and and creating experiences, um, which is what Cabal we do. We have an um, experience and event every month, very different from, you know, we do do comedy where people have never done stand-up comedy before and go outside their comfort zone and then do that together in a a really supportive network. To having dinner parties where we get dressed up, we do one called Caballoween, so where we get dressed up in in ghost and spooky outfits and tell ghost stories, which is really cool. I guess through through all of that, when I decided I was leaving the Marketing Society, which was a very, very big decision to make, and found my perfect business partner in my co-founder of Nurture, Dan Cresta, we both are natural, we like connecting people, we like making things happen. And so Nurture really is all about connecting the dots. It's a business where um, through connecting the dots, we can really help foster meaningful relationships and create really brilliant experiences. So we have a a black book of members, which is is really cool. Um, And we work with them to help them grow their businesses and all that kind of good stuff. And then we also, through knowing lots of really interesting people, have created empowering programs Um, for corporates to help motivate and inspire team and start to you know create change so that's kind of cabal and nurture in a nutshell and they very much sit together which is probably unsurprising and yeah and our whole thing is we want to work with people we like businesses we admire where we can have a bigger impact and have some fun along the way, because I don't believe there's enough fun in business. I think we need a bit more. And so that's what that's what we're doing. So we're just really early on that journey for Nurture. We started last year in the middle of COVID. I left a very nice, well-paid job to start my own business, but I haven't looked back for a second. So we're
1: gonna come back to Nurture in, in a little bit, but I would really like to just take you back and find out more how you got into the industry in the, in the first place. Could, could you just share a little bit more of your personal journey?
2: Absolutely. So I um, I didn't um, want to be a marketeer. I'm not sure who does, because I don't think any of us really know what it is right at the beginning. But I knew I wanted to do a job where I was around people and having an impact, I guess. And so... I actually wanted to be a TV presenter. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I was at university, I did a sort of a media communication business uh, film degree. And if I didn't make a TV presenter, I wanted to be a film director. That was my other um, gig. So um, so I did a, a degree kind of covering all those things at, at Brunel University. And I decided to do a thin sandwich placement, which I absolutely would recommend to anybody going through university now, where you actually get, work experience whilst you're whilst you're studying and i definitely think that helped me so much because i think when you're at university or when you're before university and you're going what do you want to be you know it's really hard to know what you want to be and so i think the more experience you can get to help see what you like and what you don't like is a is a really good thing so i did a um a work placement at both the foreign and commonwealth office and um, an IBM. And I remember when I got the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, it was um, the most sought after work placement that everyone had at Brunel. And so I thought, well, there's no way that I'll get it for a second. I wasn't the most academic. It's fair to say had a job in the bar, used to hang out quite a lot uh, socially. That kind of describes me to this day, as you'll know <laughs> Um, and, and so I thought, well, I'm never gonna get that. But I do also believe that if you don't try you won't get, and so you've got to go for things. And um, lo and behold, I got the job, so much so that um, when I saw one of the girls that was shortlisted, and she knew I was shortlisted, she said to me, do you know who actually got this job? (laughs) And I was like, actually, it was me and to say she was flawed is an absolute <laughs> understatement so I really joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as a bit of an underdog um, having no idea what I was get, letting myself get into but knew I had the opportunity to potentially learn about presenting and also making documentaries which was good for the, the um, you know ambition to be a film director as well so I went there with just all about I'm just going to learn as much as possible and become as useful and indispensable as possible, made the tea did all the filing back then we had filing again showing my age into like nice little folders and things um, and just tried to to be useful and we made documentaries to promote the relationship of Britain and other foreign and Commonwealth countries and whilst we were there there were lots of whilst I was there there was lots and lots of documentaries that we were making And there was one in particular, which was about the relationship between Britain and Canada. And I was asked to sort of assist. And when we say assist, it was assist the production assistants and producers. Mm -hmm. So again, back to making teas, doing the admin. And as I got closer to this documentary, I saw that there was a lot of um, money being spent to, to pay for clearance of copyright. And so I thought, this is all very interesting. How does this all all work out? So I I listened and I observed and got to a point where I thought, actually, there's there's got to be another way here because we're spending so much money, government, taxpayers' money, I might add. And surely the documentaries we're making are, are about fostering relationships and about having a bigger impact. There's, there's got to be another way where we can um, do this differently. And I knew our budgets were very um, small, but we were just spending them all on, on this thing. So I um, I said to the, I think she was the production assistant at the time or the exec. And I just said, oh, is there a chance that we could um, look at asking for this footage for free? And she um, laughed at me and she said why would we do that we we're just going to pay for it and what have you Um, and I said well I just feel like there's a way to you know reduce our budgets and there's a way to create bigger relationships here she literally laughed at me told me I was really stupid pretty much Uh and then said but if you think you can do it better do it yourself and (laughs) feel free to give it a go so once I picked myself off the floor again there's a there's a theme here (laughs) flawed for getting the job flawed for uh trying to do something different I did give it a go good for you and long story short uh, saved tens of thousands more money uh than they'd ever saved before just by picking up the phone and asking people um, to do things in a different way and um, and building those relationships. And the reason I tell that story is because it was that moment, that pivotal moment that I realized that as much as presenting and film directing sound really cool, um, and I know they are very, very good jobs, actually what I loved was doing things a different way, making uh, things happen that didn't seem possible and building relationships. And it's through building relationships and partnerships that i believe you can achieve you know what you want to you can achieve you know i wouldn't say everything but you can achieve a huge amount and that's what i've gone on to do so presenting went to the side and I um, was like, oh, I quite like this business luck. Let's give it a go and let's try more things. So I went to IBM. I tried PR and channel marketing, amazing placement. They offered me uh, a job to stay. I probably would um, still be an IBMer to this day if I'd have taken it. And I thought, no, I want to try something different. And I said to the IBMers, we were in marketing, and I said, oh, how do you, uh, how do you drive these cars that your colleagues are driving? I want one of those, you know, a, a <laughs> I don't know what it was now, a Porsche, Lamborghini, don't know. Um, I'm not the best with cars. Uh, They're A to B uh, vessels for me. Um, (laughs) Except now I have a Mercedes. I'm quite pleased with that one. But but, for many years, I've had had cars that I think it's fair to say are cheaper than my handbags. (laughs) But anyway, I I looked out and I said, oh, I want to drive one of those cars. And they said, oh, you'll never make that in marketing, Um, which is not true, actually. I now know that. You need to be in sales. So I was like, oh, sales. And when I was at the Foreign Office, they'd said to me, you'd be really good at sales based on the negotiation and, and all the different things I did with the documentaries. So I was like, oh, I'll try that then. Um, so there was no sort of, you know, apprentice scheme after uni that I know lots and lots of marketers have, have gone through. It was very much, let's give things a go. So I went into sales. I, it actually wasn't straight sales. It was more sales and marketing. It was a, a sponsorship exec because of my experience before. And I went in three days after I left uni. So I didn't have any break whatsoever, um, finished my placements, etc. I went straight in to uh, to this job um, at a heady title in the days of the media um, sales, uh, extravaganza, the way it used to be, into a, a title called uh, British Baker. So I went from IBM and the Foreign Office and uh, got this sponsorship exec job at British Baker. And it was, a you know, the best selling title for the bread industry. And I think it still is. And it's a very, very good title. It wasn't quite where I envisioned myself going, but it was more about <laughs> developing my skill set. And I genuinely believe that two years was a really good time for me because I learned how to be uh, incredibly resilient when I was trying to sell advertising to people in the bread industry. And they used to say to me, uh, it's so much better word of mouth, we'll never advertise. So <laughs> so I learned um, if you can sell to bakers and machinery makers, then you can pretty much do anything. And I continued on that journey, just trying different things until I found the world of membership. So I knew... I wasn't quite, you know, publishing wasn't for me, but I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I just kept on, you know, going to another job and another job and, you know, getting experience and was really sort of building my career in that side of things, but knew it just wasn't quite right for me. And then I was approached by an organization called the Design Business Association, the DBA, a brilliant organization, um, still very good friends with the chief exec to this day. And I was approached to help um, build their um, their business and also their membership, and that was the first time I'd experienced membership and bringing communities together. And I was sold. For me, it was what it was all about. Um, you uh, you know, you engage your members, you engage your communities, you engage your customers. Um, you understand how to how to keep them happy, and you bring them together and you can create some incredible experiences. And that's when I decided that's what I wanted to do. So until that point, and Helen Tupper who and Sarah Ellis, who are absolutely brilliant, and I was actually just listening, because Helen's one of our, our talent that we work with on Nurture. I was just listening to Helen a second ago, and um, she was talking about um, squiggly careers, and I, <laughs> I define a squiggly career, um, where you're not this, this ladder going in one direction, but actually, um, and one designation, actually not quite sure where you're going, but going to end up somewhere. And it was through the DBA that I was then approached to join the marketing society. And I spent 13 years, 14 years of my career there um, until very recently. So yeah, it was all about trying new things, not knowing where I'm going, but knowing that I wanted to achieve some good things and, um, and go for it.
1: And what's amazing about that squiggly career, and obviously none of us can help but but do the squiggle. Well, no one can actually see us doing the squiggle because it's a, an audio podcast. But um, what really strikes me is there's that ethos of Gemma. You know the the relationships and and how you use that as your kind mean, of superpower. But how you picked up things from all of the different areas, and I think that's so important that it it's good to have those squiggly careers and. You know, working for the baker. Did you say it's the British Baker? The British Baker, yeah. The British Baker, because I I worked for one of my early careers was at the Institute of Measurement and Control, which is an engineering institute. And I, like you, was trying to sell advertising space in the in the magazine, and was also going off and doing various sort of things like going to press junkets as a sort of twenty two year old, absolutely terrified. But it's so important to get these experiences and learn. And it's, it's kind of only when you look back at your squiggly career that you see
2: just how everything brought to you to where you are now. So yeah. true. It's so true. I love the fact you worked on um, a similar <laughs> attractive title. I think the best one out there is Plastics and Rubber Weekly. <laughs> the Mad boggles. It's so true. I think everything that you do shapes who you are today. And I think it's really interesting looking back and figuring out when, when things started to happen in the way that, you know, you wanted them to, and actually you've just got to experience it and go for it. And you get loads of things wrong. And I certainly got loads of things wrong. Many, many things wrong. I still continue to, but you know, you get some right.
0: (laughs) So on that theme of looking back over our journeys and, and where we ended up compared to to what we experienced I'd like to go even further back to when you were a child and consider how that shaped where you've ended up so what were you like as a child
2: oh gosh I was um I was a very determined um little girl my dad's a chartered accountant and my mum was a solicitor so came from a very you know professional background. She's she's now working with my dad, um, assisting him. But I would say it's the other way around. Just want to make it clear <laughs> that even though she's not solicitor, she's she's still very much here. And they were they were very um, they were big influences in my life. Always working really hard, particularly my mum. My mum somehow managed to run the family and the family home and what have you, but also hold down an incredible career. Um, so very much looked up to her, ended up working with her at her firm and realising I absolutely did not want to be a solicitor. It was work for my mum, but not for my dad. <laughs> and same with accounting as well, because they both said, well, you could take on my firm. And I was like, thank you very much. And I'm sure it's wonderful. And I'm very, you know, admire you so much. But no, that that won't be for me. So I was very determined. I was very I think it's fair to say I was quite competitive so when I was at uh, my junior school we did exams um, so it was uh, this great school called Royal Russell my son's school now it, you know this subject led but it's um, it's not as rigid as my school so we did exams so my earliest memory is one of my earliest rem- memories is having to get be top of the class having to achieve that. And that was always my dad's way as well. He was always like second best isn't good enough. I'm not saying that's right now, but that's the way I was Mm -hmm. um, brought up. So yeah, that was for me. It was all about getting top of the class and, and I did achieve that. And I think that just kind of drove me on to want to go for it and want to achieve great things. So I was very determined. I was quite competitive. I was you know all about my friends like for me and and it's still the way now but just having great friendships and just hanging out with with um good people and um yeah it was that that was my life really yeah very determined and yeah happy I was a happy happy little girl um but I had great role models in in my mum and dad.
0: Right. And was being a TV presenter, was that something you wanted to be when you were little as well? Or was there something else you wanted to be?
2: Do you know what? I don't know when I decided I wanted to be a TV presenter, but I know by the time I was 16 or something, I was absolutely mm. determined. And I ended up doing a showreel, actually. And I was told, it was quite funny, I was told, you'll never make a news reader. You're much more big breakfast,
0: <laughs> right? That's a compliment, though, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think that also shows what I'm like. I don't take myself too seriously, and mm-hmm. never have done through my life. So, yeah, I just, I just thought maybe it was glamorous. I don't know. I just, mm. I just wanted to, yeah, wanted to be a TV presenter. Wanted to get out there. And, and I think at school as well, like, um, you know, you you excel in certain subjects, don't you? So English orals, I was always told at some point you'll need to go into public speaking. I didn't right. know what that was then. So I thought public speaking was, was being a presenter maybe, mm-hmm. as opposed to actually what we do in our industry, you know, um, get out there and, and, and speak for others and, and hopefully hopefully, inspire people now and again. Definitely. <laughs> and if
0: you could give your teenage self some advice, what would that be?
2: Oh my goodness, so much. Every opportunity is a learning opportunity. I genuinely believe that. Um, and I genuinely believe you're learning every day, we learn all the time. And I wish I'd have been more open to that and maybe mm. less rigid when I make it to be a TV presenter as opposed to, you know, seeing seeing and exploring and accepting there's opportunities that will come in the way that may not have been what your destination, you know, that you thought your destination was. But actually those opportunities are really, really brilliant. And, um, and I think for young, for teenagers, um, seize every opportunity. Everything's about learning and believe in yourself. Truly believe in yourself and know who you are. I don't think I truly knew who I was. I am um, till later in life.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The way that we all grew up in, in in these different magazine jobs that you know we've <laughs> we've been blessed with and different corporate world that we we've all been in is that you know you show one side of yourself at work and another side in your personal life and I actually I would say to my teenage self just be you yeah and I genuinely believe that if we can be ourselves and be our true selves that's when we will achieve um our best our personal best and also be happy so you know one of my favorite quotes is be you so others can be them and that's what I would say to my teenage self. And actually, I'm about to talk to 150 teenagers, girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my messages is, you know, if you believe in yourself, anything is possible.
0: That's a great message. And it could be, I mean, we probably all arrive at that point in our journey in different times where, where we we realise who we are. And we realise that being professional at work is not some sort of act. It's not that you're pretending to be, to, to be someone else. Yeah, I think that's lovely, lovely advice. And in this squiggly, I'm doing it now, this squiggly (laughs) career that you've had, what's the worst job you've ever had? You don't need to name names, but, you know, feel free.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So after uh, the Design Business Association and between the Marketing Society, um, one of the members of the DBA ruthlessly poached me to the point where they gave me an offer I could not refuse Um, fell in love with the woman that was going to be in charge um, and left this great home that I had at the DBA. And Debbie, the chief exec, still hasn't forgiven me to this day. Um, But, you know, I was at that point, we were buying a place, um, you know, needing the financial security. And also I believed it was a really good move for me um where i'd learn a lot more new skills and um and develop as a as a as a human and what have you so i went from this lovely place that i um i was very at home to a it was a brand agency i won't mention their name but if they hear this they will know they'll know <laughs> uh, it was a brand agency and as i said i fell in love with the woman that offered me the job and she really went for it and really she, she knew what she wanted and she got it, which I love. And, you know, she was a real influence. But on the first day of that job, she took me into a, uh, a room and she said, I've got some news and that is that I'm leaving. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> and she was leaving in, I think it was something like a week because her husband had got a job porting on the Olympics, I believe in Beijing. So it kind of tells you, so you, you could really work this out. But anyway, my so my inspiration, any doubts I had, I kept on thinking, but I'm going to work with this amazing woman. So it's all, all cool. And then when she left and she wasn't, that inspiration wasn't there anymore. And the cold light of day, the job that I was in, which was essentially business development in a brand agency, but it wasn't really structured in the way that, you know, I think it is today. And I think that it can be an absolutely fantastic job, but this particular one wasn't. And um, I used to, every day, feel fear about going to work because I was so unhappy.
0: Um, oh, that's awful. It
2: was awful. I used to phone um, the talking clock and it would say, time sponsored by Acuraus will be 5.23. <laughs> <523." laughs> and I used to think, oh, seven minutes left of this hell. Oh, gosh. And I really disliked it. And I used to go home and I would I would be on the tra- train and sometimes just, just burst out crying. And it was really affecting my confidence. Mm-hmm my then boyfriend who's who's now my husband said you've you've got you've got to get out this is not good and i said well maybe i'm not meant to be um a career person maybe we just start having babies and that will be lovely which is a great route if you want to go down that route but i had genuinely lost my belief in you know what what i was good at and, and what i um what i was able to bring to organisations and so realized I had to leave so I I was there for six months it wasn't like me for me I was always on that journey as much as it was squiggly I was always I need to be a manager by the time I'm 23 I need to do I was always crazily fiercely ambitious that was the other thing I was as a little girl ambitious Mm -hmm. um and so to leave a job without anywhere else to go for was unheard of and I really struggled with it however um I was that unhappy and um the minute i left the society opportunity arose and so i do believe things are meant to happen sometimes mm-hmm. and uh, i joined there a few weeks later marketing society in 2006 and didn't look back so yeah that was my that was my worst job and i genuinely believe if you're that unhappy and it's beginning to affect your confidence mm-hmm. you have to get out and i think that is such a good lesson in life that a lot of us stay because we don't want to let ourselves down or others down, but it's actually yeah. making the decision to leave is a really brave and strong decision. And it proved to be um, the best one that I that I made.
0: But, I mean, we spend too, too much of our lives at work to be somewhere that makes us that miserable. And I think the longer it goes on, the more you end up in that rut and it just becomes your reality that you hate work.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, as uh, Helen said earlier, um, Apparently, we spend ninety thousand hours of our life at work. Wow! And so, if you if you're going to spend that long, then I genuinely believe you've got to love what you do. And there's a great quote from from Steve Jobs uh, in his Stanford speech, where he talks about you know he talks about lots of different things, connecting the dots and how things happen. Um, But one of the areas he talks about is um, loving what you do and finding what you love. Like keep going, keep being relentless, keep pushing until you truly love what you do. Because it's only when you love what you do that you'll be truly exceptional. And I live and breathe that completely um, and always have encouraged everyone around me. It's so much so that I've had team members and I've known that as much as it's a good job I didn't truly love it. You know, there was one guy who wanted to go into rugby and I encouraged him. And I said, you've got to love what you do and and you don't truly love it here. So let me help you with your next step. So I even wrote his CV for him. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, you know, and it's not that I didn't like him. I think it was a brilliant guy, Um, but I wanted him to find what he loved, what his passion was, because that's when he'd be truly exceptional. But from a manager point of view, he was never going to be at his potential for us because he didn't love what he did so I genuinely think if it's not quite there if you've got that niggling then there's probably a reason and and so go out and pursue pursue your dreams Mm
0: -hmm. thinking about the people that you've worked with over the years again in your squiggly career and I suspect you've probably mentioned a couple already but which genuine humans have really influenced your career
2: oh that's such a hard question so many (laughs) Steve Radcliffe is probably one of my biggest inspirations. He wrote the book uh, Leadership Plain and Simple, Future Engage, Deliver, also his book before. Um, He was, I was lucky enough to have him as our leadership coach on our marketing leader program that we ran at the Society. And I went on that course one year um, and it was genuinely, genuinely life-changing. It still runs now, so it's a bit of an advert for them, but I was not trying to do that. Um, He just, he always said to me, Um, This leadership stuff doesn't need to be complicated. It's quite simple. Future, engage, deliver. And um, I really, that really helped shape my role at the Marketing Society um, and also me personally. And he taught me about self-limiting beliefs. And until that point, I just thought those voices in my head were only in my head and no one else had them you know, those confidence gremlins, those, those voices that hold you back. And he taught me about thinking about who I want to be and not letting those things hold you back away from where you want to be and where others see you. And that was, was just such a life-defining um, moment for me. And he still continues to be a great friend. And every time we meet up, and obviously COVID's affected it a wee bit, but we have lunch maybe twice a year, three times a year. And he, um, it's like a coaching lunch. He says, right, I want 20 minutes of your time with some advice, which in itself, the fact that such a guru wants my advice, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> gives me great confidence. And then he's like, but we're going to spend some time on you. And, um, and he's just such a giving, brilliant, creative human being. He, he probably has been the biggest influence in my life, but many others, um, Hugh Burkitt, who was my predecessor at the Society, taught me so much. Stephen Mayer who um, is one of our industry gods uh, has always just been such a support. Tamara such a support helps you know all of us together at Cabal the way we help shape each other is is brilliant and um, and I'm always in total admiration of Tamara. So many so many people, Sil Salah, previous uh, CMO of Diageo, she was our president at the society when I became chief exec and she said to me my number one role as president is to help you be even better. And I thought, wow, Mm most people, it's about their agenda and what they want to achieve. And she was like, I love what you guys are doing. I love the brave agenda. Well, actually, she didn't love the brave agenda. She loved the bold agenda. She grew to love the brave agenda um, (laughs) uh, very much, but I had to sell it to her. I had to, she's like, pitch me the brave agenda. And I did. And she said, okay, I believe in my people and I believe in you and I'll trust you even though this doesn't feel quite right. And now she, she eats her words, but she, that's, that's, I guess one of the reasons she's such a influence to me because she, she was all about empowering me to be better. Um, and that's what I try to do with other people. But I know there's so many other millions of people that have um, influenced me, but it's um, yeah, it would be like a roller's X of names. Chris <laughs> Sutherswaite, Chris Sathersway, another guy. It was the uh, chief exec of Chime and always just taught me to just go for it and to be myself and, to push boundaries and what have you. So um, yeah, I've been really blessed to be around some incredible, incredible humans.
1: Surrounded yourself with with amazing people. Go, going back to the, the Brave uh, agenda, because that was that is obviously your, your legacy at the Marketing Society. So tell us a little bit more about how that came about. I, I hadn't realized that you had to really sell it in. So I'd love to hear more about <laughs> how that came about.
2: Our purpose at the society was always to inspire bolder marketing leadership. I want to say always. It was uh, after I came off the marketing leaders course, I said to Hugh Burkett, who was my then boss, I said, we need a purpose because that was one of the things that was very um, evident. And that's what I think is so important in marketing today. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more. So we need a purpose. And so we agreed together with our board, it would be about inspiring bolder marketing leadership. And when I knew I was becoming chief exec, it went out. So I'd been at the Society, I'd been MD for a few years, uh, been in charge of leading the global business. So when I started at the Society, it was a UK-based network that's fair to say was, um, you know, quite traditional, quite set in its ways. And um, we realised there was a real opportunity to, to grow it globally. So I'd been very involved in leading the global community growth. And for four or five years i was md and and doing that and really enjoying that and when i knew i um was becoming chief executive uh, of the society i was kind of like well i'm totally ready for this because i've been doing this for so long um i know what i'm doing all great very good relationship with hugh very big relationship he trusted me to hand over the reins as did the board and then it went out i think it was in campaign and um, I started getting millions of messages, not millions, that's me exaggerating. That's another thing I, I tend to do. <laughs> Why well, let the truth get the way of a good story? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Very lots and lots of messages from really supportive people in the industry saying, goodness me, you know, great for you. Congratulations. But also some people saying, <laughs> should have happened before. So there was all these like lots and lots of different messages. And I was like, brilliant. Right. So I'm now doing this thing, it's out there. And then I just got the absolute dread, I'm really doing this thing. It's public. There's no going back. And I started to feel really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I started to feel really scared. And I started to think, right, well, if I'm going to do this thing, I need to emulate Hugh because he's the most amazing statesman uh, of the society and, and a real inspiration to me. And so I was like, right, well, I'm just gonna have to learn um, Hughes' way and Hughes' way is incredibly different to mine. He's very corporate, he's very polished. Um, some might say a wee bit posh and in a good way and very, very business-like and I'm not really. So I started to think, do I do that? And then it was through, again, being around great people or do I be me? And if I be me, then that means be, as we talked about earlier, like be my true self. And that means showing that vulnerability that I was feeling. And that definitely meant being brave and stepping outside my comfort zone. And that's how the agenda started. I didn't feel bold was enough. Mm -hmm. So I went to Sil Salah, who um, we recruited, appointed as president, and um, said... I think it should be about inspiring brave leadership, or actually, as we as we uh, work to empowering brave leadership. And she's brave, you know. What does that mean, you know? And I, I had a lot of people say to me, "Well, what does brave mean?" Brave is a soldier. Brave is, you know, um, someone that goes to the army. And I said, "Yes, it is that, but it's also it's someone that's that's prepared to go outside of their comfort zone. Someone that's prepared to show the vulnerability." And that started this whole journey around if I'm going to be brave, I want to encourage others to be brave. And what does that mean? That starts with being yourself, being your true self. It's okay not to be okay, as the great Ruby Wax said at one of our events that we ended up doing in The Brave Agenda. And and that started this whole conversation. Well, if it's okay not to be okay, let's talk about the things that really matter to us as humans, not just as marketeers, as 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 humans and so let's start looking at the subjects that are often seen as taboo that shouldn't be and let's create spaces to have important conversations about things that matter and that was the start of the brave agenda and it just took off globally and um, we started having global conversations about important subjects where together as marketeers, given the influence and the opportunity that we have, that, you know, very um, privileged opportunity being the voice of the customer, we could start to make change. And so we did. And the first subject was all around mental health. And that was before that was before Prince Harry did his interview. That was before we were talking about it. And I remember people saying, well, marketing sites are doing mental health. Well, what's that about? You know, you should be talking about digital marketing. It's like, yeah, we are talking about marketing. Of course, that's that's really important. And we always will. It's our, our, our lifeblood. But we've also got an opportunity to talk about other things. And that was the start of the Brave Agenda. And it ended up becoming a global conversation that hopefully encouraged others to be brave and go outside their comfort zone and show their vulnerability. And so, yeah, it was a... It was a big thing that lots of people say. Oh, how did you spearhead this strategy? <laughs> no, <laughs> it was from feeling brave myself and wanting to encourage others to be, and um, it went from there.
1: And I can honestly say that the the marketing society conferences, uh, you know, have been the, the best conferences that that I've, I've ever been to. And I, I think you really pioneered that those goldfish bowl sessions as well. And going back to that vulnerability, and obviously, I've seen you uh, do them at the Rise Conference, another amazing conference. Could you just explain a little bit more about the Goldfish Bowl sessions as well? Because not everyone will be familiar with those and, and why they matter.
2: Well, the first thing to say is there is no fish yeah. for everyone <laughs> listening. It's about creating a space where you can have a conversation about subjects that, tech, that typically are quite taboo, that you would only have behind closed doors. So it's about create. It's not about having a speaker as such or lots of different speakers. And I remember when I first started them, uh, people were like, well, so who's the keynote speaker Well, who's the panellist? It's not about that. It's contributors. It's creating space where the audience become the speakers, the audience become the, the people that take part. And so the first one we did actually was on mental health. Um, And we took that conversation all around the world um, to places like Dubai where it had never been talked about publicly Mm -hmm. on stage to goodness me, I remember in, um, we did back to back in Hong Kong and Singapore and people would just, they were expecting to, you know, turn up to a marketing event and be talking about all things marketing. And they ended up talking about their, their personal feelings and how they haven't been able to share because it's frowned upon. And so this started this this snowball effect of if you create a space where people become the participators together you can start to make some real change so i've been asked to do them for lots of people the most recent one i did was for rise uh, that virtual that that's interesting doing them virtually i prefer doing them in person but it allows you to tackle topics as I said, that are usually behind closed doors. It allows you to together share personal stories, which in itself is really cathartic. But then the point of them is, how can we then start to make change? What action are we going to take tomorrow? And they've been really great. And I've had lots of letters from people. I did one on imp- imposter syndrome and, um, I remember it was really funny, actually. It was for Rise. You were there, tomorrow. I was. It was so
1: powerful. I was, I was too scared to go in and talk about my imposter syndrome. <laughs> but
2: you remember the first person. So at the event, I was, I was quite nervous because these events do not work if people don't take part so you are taking a risk you're being brave putting them on they're quite brave events um, and obviously you've got to tee it up and, and, and do it in a certain way but I'll never forget there were no questions that morning to any of the speakers so Ali Hannan who's the brilliant lady behind Creative Equals was asking every single question so I thought oh gosh this is going to be a car crash and then I started I got a couple of people to share their uh, stories and I'll never forget the first girl that put her hand up and she said I'm not actually sure what I'm going to say but I've wanted to ask a question all day, but my imposter syndrome stopped me. So I'm just here to speak. And I was just like, yes. And then from that, people said, I was never, ever, I've never publicly spoken before, but I just feel safe. I feel safe. And then they did. And then together we just had the most incredible experience. And They're probably one of my favourite things to do. I love doing them and I'm going to continue doing them. I've got one soon for talking about women leadership or women in business and the barriers. And you can get you can really start to achieve some great things together.
1: And I love to think of the impact that you're having on lots of other people's squiggly careers as well of those those moments when they share that that, that vulnerability and, and perhaps move forward. So please keep doing them. I think they're amazing.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: So which brands have really taken the Brave Mantra and run with it? And and who's impressing you at the moment?
2: So I think so many brands have embraced the Brave Mantra. Many have said to me that internally it's helped them with their teams to get their teams to go outside their comfort zones um, and not to sit in silos and to try new things. So that's actually really one of my proudest achievements is knowing that it's affected people uh, within their jobs but some examples of brands, for me, it's it's less about, I can give lots of examples, but it's less about the individual brand. It's more about brands that have a real purpose, mm-hmm. are prepared to go against the norm, are prepared to go against status quo and do things that stand out. Lots of examples of that. Maltesers, they're one of my favorite brands because what they have achieved through their marketing, tackling subjects that really tap into our humanity, often subjects that are seen as maybe taboo, we go back to the taboo piece, or, or subjects that we, challenges in our industry and in society that we need to tackle. When brands stand above everyone else and um, and do that within their campaigns, I think is really admirable. So, so Malteser's, and normalizing it as yeah. well. And that's what brands like uh, Maltesers have done brilliantly. Same as body form and blood normal. I was absolutely like astounded in a brilliant way with their work. And what I loved is the lady who uh, was behind all of that was one of our uh, runners up in when I was at the society um, as uh, one of the marketing leaders of the year. And she said she was prepared to do work so brave it got her fired. Yeah. You know she accepted she might get sacked the next day but she was going to go for it anyway because she believed in what she was doing and she believed in making change so for me it's those brands that really are purpose-led and are prepared to push boundaries And also that do good. So I love Premier Inn, you know, in COVID. And I know we've had the amazing, another Kabbalian, Tamara Strauss, uh, Namesake. You know, what they did with um, giving homeless people and key workers accommodation during COVID times. What Airbnb are doing at the moment, giving 20,000 of their places um, to Afghan refugees. You know, that's what I think is brave and bold and brilliant marketing. And we need to see more of it. And people that you know, go for it and try new things and you're not always going to get it right and that's okay, but that's the only way that you learn and will make a difference.
1: And the way that they were able to react so quickly, you can tell that those decisions are being made really quickly by brave leaders rather than, you know, endless days of committee or whatever. You can really see that that leadership coming through.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's where companies need to give and, indiv- you know, and, and uh, CEOs need to give... People like marketing leaders complete autonomy to make decisions and to make quick decisions and trust and there's got to be more trust in business that actually you know um, we know what we're doing we've we've had a you know <laughs> a career of it and so we need to trust people more to um, to go for it because that's when the magic happens.
1: Now I want to go back to nurture. We mentioned it at the top of the interview and uh, obviously you co-founded that with the brilliant Dan Cresta just before the pandemic took hold. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's super stressful. How has it been for you? And is, is it everything that you expected uh, running your business with him?
2: It was actually right in the middle of the pandemic because the society asked me to um, stay for longer because obviously it's not an easy thing to, to step in to become a new chief exec in the middle of the pandemic. So I stayed for, and, and also to pivot the business, We had to pivot the business we had never done a webinar at the society and by the time i left we had done 40. so Mm -hmm. when we actually officially started nurture it was in july just when things were going back to normal before we had another lockdown so uh yeah it was it was perfect timing (laughs) it's (laughs) fair to say but i think if you get the right business partner who shares similar values vision of what you can achieve together then I genuinely think that you can do anything, and that's what I have with Dan. We um, we complement each other really well. We've we're both full of ideas. We're both those people that can't sit still, which is a, a true value of Cabal people that that can't sit still. Tomorrow definitely one of those people, and and we knew that we believed in the power of relationships. And so, so we really focused on that. We focused on what we're good at, not what we're less good at, the stuff that gives us energy. And very quickly, people said, well, could you help us with this? And we'd like to be a Black Book member. And then people that are just so kind and good as well, kind of like, well, I would have gone to someone else with this brief, but you're a new business. So let's, um, you know, I want to help you. And that's the great thing, you know, the karma that goes around and we've just been really blessed and um, we've also made sure as well that we're very um squiggly that we're not rigid that we're fluid so if something doesn't feel right we'll say actually this isn't quite working and as you know you know tomorrow we've pivoted the things that we've done and so we've just kept things constantly organic and growing and that's worked out really well and we've created we're really proud of a program we created called empower which is to bring in amazing talent to empower and motivate corporates, companies, teams, individuals. and the impact that that has had and the feedback that we've had from people that has you know that, that it's really like either thought about changing career or or given them more confidence or different skills. And that for us, is what it's all about. And so, yeah, we're just early on that journey. I'm not saying it's all been easy. Um, we started in coffee shops and we got to the point and we just like, no, we need an office. So we now have a lovely, lovely office in Richmond. And yeah, we're seeing how it all goes. But it's, it's kind of it's kind of working out OK at the moment.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful.
0: So we're going to move on to the part of the podcast now where we get a bit more personal. So let's start with how do you like to spend your downtime? And do you have any guilty pleasures that you'd be prepared to share with us?
2: So... Probably it's fair to say, I don't want to sound like an alcoholic, but, but with a glass of wine. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, hanging out with good people in nice places, really. That's probably my favorite way to relax and to unwind. My other guilty pleasure is cheesy TV. I love a box set. I'm a big fan of Netflix. So... Yeah, I'm not going to give you the names of the things. Because I was going to say biggest what this audience. What's the one that you
1: are most embarrassed about?
2: Well, there's, there's no, there's no shame to be honest.
1: No shame whatsoever.
2: What My most embarrassed, but I'm not embarrassed about them. No, me neither. I'm into the *Prodigal Son* at the moment, and I love *Grey's Anatomy*. I've loved that forever. No, I'm not embarrassed. Quite like a bit of reality TV now and again. Haven't mm-hmm. quite got into *Love Island*, even though the world has. But don't mind *Made in Chelsea* because it's just so ludicrous. It it's um it's quite funny and so stuff like that I quite like viewing other people's world so yeah I think you're 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 positively
1: highbrow connected to me I'm I'm well into um married at first sight uh, UK <laughs> at the moment <laughs> so Brilliant. never have any shame
2: <laughs> no RuPaul's Drag Race quite like that, just that. yeah 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 so agree no shame.
0: <laughs> None whatsoever. It's game shows for me. Oh. Uh, I love a game show. Quizzes. Um, I'm really rubbish at them. But if I want to feel good about myself, though, I'll watch Tipping Point because I know all the answers to that one. That's fine. Oh, but wow. um, but that, that's the easy one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is it? I don't know about that. But my favourite game show is Would I Lie to You?
0: I love that so much, especially when Bob Mortimer's on.
2: Oh, yeah. It's Absolutely funny. hilarious. And actually, we created a version of that for Cabal called You Cannot Be Serious. We weren't able to use the same name because, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, um, and featuring Cavalions having to come up with true stories and and lies and it was absolutely brilliant we should do that again actually definitely
0: definitely (laughs) it's brilliant so perfect weekend friends wine box sets yeah is that a fair summary
2: time with joshy the weekend Mm -hmm. that's what it's all about my five-year-old who is my world just love hanging out with him and i'm lucky he likes some cheesy tv and brilliant yeah he's a bit too active for my liking though he's the whole time mummy play with me play, play with me Um, So, I'm finding myself in the park with a Frisbee quite a lot.
1: (laughs) You could work on that though.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Now, if you could wake up tomorrow with one new skill or ability, what would it be?
2: This is really boring. I've gone into the back to work in this sense. I would love to be good at spreadsheets. Okay. terrible at anything to do with process and admin and my business partner Dan will will testify to that as will all my team from the marketing society Um, and I believe you have to focus on your strengths and um, and therefore um, I haven't ever focused on admin Um, however now I have my own business having the ability to create and read and build out insight from a spreadsheet I would absolutely love so yeah I would like to geek out on spreadsheets.
0: I feel heard. Sometimes (laughs) I need to know how many things there are on the spreadsheet, and I'll point at the screen and count the cells. And I know that there's a better way. I just don't know what it is.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not even that far advanced to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Now,
1: how would your friends describe you, and or maybe how would you like them to describe you?
2: Oh, that's always a hard one. I would say, I would say people would call me restless. I'm always. I'm always onto the next thing. I'm always like, you know, I've got like so much energy. They would say I'm full of energy. People always say like how, and I'm like, I have no idea. It's probably alcohol <laughs> <laughs> and coffee <laughs> depending on the time of day. So so full of energy. I'd like to say that they uh, they would say I'm humble. I think that um, that's something that's really important, value to me. Don't take myself too seriously and a bit of a joker. I think it's fair to say. tomorrow you're one of my friends. How would you describe me? <laughs> I, I think it's always, it's just so warm and
1: just naturally connecting and thoughtful and just great fun to be around. So that's that's several of them there.
2: I'll take your answer. Forget my answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.